Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to make you all aware of a new higher education CRM that I've recently come to know that I think many of you will be very, very interested in. Um, and the best way to actually describe what the really the power of this CRM is to use an experience disruption analogy. So if you listened to one or more of our podcasts, you've probably heard me at some point talk about experience disruption. And one of the best ways to explain what experience experience disruption is, is to think about Uber's relationship with the traditional taxi industry, right? So from a product standpoint, Uber and your traditional classic yellow taxi cab aren't objectively different, right? They're both going to get you from point A to point B. But the difference with Uber is all in the experience. You can pop up your phone while you're at the bar finishing up your drink and request a car. The car will pull up and it'll take you exactly where you need to go. It's, it's an experience with very, very little friction, and that's why Uber wins. So similarly, Verity CRM is a CRM that acts more like an Uber and less like a traditional higher education CRM, which acts a little bit more like a taxi. So Verity delivers the industry's easiest way to communicate with perspective existing, and former students. They have a powerful built-in contact center that facilitates effective communication via multiple contact paths, which really allows university departments to focus on high-value conversations that lead to higher retention, greater conversions, and more effective job placement. The CRM is not just really, really powerful. The interface is beautiful, and it's, it's really fun to kind of play around with and build content in. It's super, super, super easy to do. So it's got like the powerful robustness of like a slate, but the easy to use functionality of like a HubSpot. And it's a higher education CRM that's built exclusively for enrollment managers and um, enrollment marketing teams. So if you want to learn more about Verity and you want to understand more about how this product is disrupting the higher education CRM experience space, head on over to verityiq.com. That's verityiq.com forward slash Enrollify to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. We've got some exciting news. We've got Matt back on the show with us today, and we are actually moving Second Look to be featured on the core Enrollify podcast as its own unique monthly segment, which is really exciting. So the uh, first full week of every month, we will bring you a recap of the higher education marketing trends that we believe are you know worth paying attention to, uh, the ones that sort of stood out to us. There's zillions of trends in, in any given day, really, um, that can pull at your attention, and we're going to aggregate the, the trends that we believe are most important for enrollment marketers to be aware of. Um, as a friendly reminder, Matt is the managing editor of Enrollify's weekly newsletter, The Minute, and he spends time every week scouring the internet for the trends that are most crucial for enrollment marketers to be paying attention to. Matt, you ready to dive into this fresh segment? Great to be back, Zach. I'm ready. Fantastic. So we're about to get super meta for just a second here and talk about podcasting on a podcast. 
Um, Matt, as somebody who, you know, records, I, I think I record like three to four podcasts, uh, a week now, um, you know, and I have no problem with admitting how scrappy sort of like my process is. It sort of looks like reach out to somebody on LinkedIn, record a quick episode, send it to, you know, Dan, our colleague at DD studio, have him edit it, upload it to Simplecast, and share it on social media. I don't spend nearly enough time thinking about podcasting's effect on Enrollify's SEO. So you covered podcasting a few weeks ago in the minute. Um, can you please just you know school me on how to ensure that the Enrollify podcast ranks number one for quote unquote best podcast ever? What are, what are uh, some things folks should be aware of as they think about launching a podcast for student recruitment, for, for their own marketing, um, et cetera? Absolutely. You know, being scrappy is definitely a good start, but just like any other form of content, getting your school's podcast to rank on Google is key and it takes more than just being scrappy. So one suggestion is to start by forming podcasts around keywords, just like you would an ebook or a guide. And we suggest using long tail keywords to start and mention those keywords a few times in your podcast. Did you know, Zach, that search engines can actually listen to your podcast? Honestly, honestly, I didn't. I didn't until I read this uh, in in the minute a couple weeks ago, and I was like, "What? That's insane!" I mean, yeah, it it makes a lot of sense, um, and just sort of confirms the suspicion that like phones are listening to everything that we're saying and <laughs> serving us ads accordingly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it definitely plays into that whole phone listening to you situation, which is a little creepy sometimes. Anyhow, um, your podcast title and descriptions those should always include the keyword or phrase that you're building your podcast around. And lastly, always publish a transcript if possible of your episode and optimize that for SEO with headers and links within the transcript where it makes sense. You can even consider repurposing the transcript as a blog on your site. I know that's one thing that we've looked into with our podcast is publishing transcripts, but it goes a long way in, in the SEO game for your podcast. And you know, I think higher education is adopting podcasts as a recruitment tactic. I know my former school has put out a new podcast and while also, you know, using it as a, as a method to increase and grow thought leadership. Yeah. But sharing your podcast on social media likely isn't enough. You want that listenership to grow organically. And that's why you should start optimizing your podcast for search engines. This can improve the chance that prospective students searching for information related to a topic associated with your program can find your podcast just like they would your ebook or program guide. I'm taking lots of notes here, Matt. Thank you, thank you. Um, I did actually just did a little bit of a keyword research and uh, discovered that best podcast ever has an MSV of a thousand, so a monthly search volume of of a, of a thousand, according to SEM Rush, um, and a keyword difficulty score of eighty four. So. Little, uh, little hard to kind of secure a top spot there, but uh, I think it's worth. I think it's worth trying. I think we just need to start uh, keyword stuffing our our transcripts um, and and use that sort of as as a starting point to up our SEO game. Um, but you know, speaking of of social media, Matt. Facebook announced that come February of next year, so February 2021, it's going to actually limit the number of ads that any Facebook page can run at once. Can you unpack this for us, Matt? You know, what's what is Facebook's logic here? Yeah, so first and foremost, the, the limits will really depend on how much you spend on Facebook advertising in any given month. So for example, if you're a company spending less than $100,000 per month on Facebook, you'll be limited to deploying no more than 250 ads at once. 
So Facebook really claims that running too many ads at once can negatively affect what they call the learning phase. And this is where Facebook's algorithm attempts to collect information about your ad and determine how to optimize it. In not many enrollment marketers will have to worry about that ad limit. At least I think 250 ads yeah. is quite a lot of, yeah. of, of wiggle room there. Uh, and there is potential positive here. Fewer ads means less competition to reach prospective students on Facebook. Plus, Facebook claims your ads will improve as a result of a more optimized learning phase. This is very, very interesting. Um, and again, yeah, for, for most of our listeners, this probably isn't going to uh, negatively affect you in any way. Um, and as, as you just alluded to, Matt, has, has actually the opportunity to positively affect, affect many of us. Um, and, you know, in a time when media budgets are being slashed left and right, um, I'll take any reduction in competition that I can get. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this will be a, a net positive for the education space. Um, again, since most most schools aren't going to be running 250 ads at the same time. I think where you could run into potentially some issue is if you're running a lot of ads from your institution's core brand page. And that core brand page is also running ads for, you know, every department and students, you know, affairs and, uh, you know, uh, advancement, etc., Potentially at a very large institution, you could run into um, into a couple snags here. But, uh, you know, for 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 most of us here, this this sh should be positive and, and not negative. Um, but speaking of media buys and digital advertising, Google made a fairly notable change to its audience types uh, just a few weeks ago. Can you enlighten us, Matt, on what these changes are and, and why you think that they matter? Sure. So Google merged its custom affinity and custom intent audiences into one custom audiences sort of grouping here. Marketers can now use these custom audiences to reach people with certain interests or purchase intentions and people who search for certain terms on Google properties. Any pre-existing custom affinity or custom intent audiences can be automatically converted to custom audiences as well. And I think the application here, you know, enrollment marketers can use Google's custom audiences to target people who have searched for specific terms. So adding search terms like top MBA programs to your custom audience will allow you to match your ads with users who have searched these terms on Google or YouTube or other Google properties. You know, relevancy and personalization in advertising really is key. So the ability to deploy an ad for your MBA program to someone who just searched for relevant terms on Google is a huge opportunity. It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, too, but it, it seems like this is just an attempt to make it easier for marketers and, you know, in our case, enrollment marketers to essentially buy media from Google. Like this is this is basically taking sort of some of this confusing, oh, do I pick custom affinity or custom intent sort of like out of the equation and just making it, uh, you know, more of a frictionless experience for, for people that are going to purchase ad placements. Is that fair? Yes. That's correct. Yeah, it's just a, a grouping of those two different types of audiences to make it easier for marketers and, and advertisers and even those novice advertisers to understand that uh, you can just target all these different people with all these different intents within one sort of audience framework instead of two different frameworks. Fantastic, fantastic. I think that that will clear up some fog around the, um, you know, the, the entire experience of placing Google ads, reporting on Google ads, etc. Um, it's speaking of Google, there was another significant update that they made to its reporting tool, which concerns the inability to see queries that triggered 
Google ads if there's not what Google calls enough quote unquote significant data on the actual query. Matt, what does this actually mean? And you know, why is this change important for enrollment marketers to be aware of? This is a really interesting update, Zach. So Google advertisers will no longer be able to see search queries that trigger their ads when there's not enough uh, significant data on the query. Google uses this term significant, which obviously doesn't really mean much to a lot of people. <laughs> it's kind of tough to decipher exactly what significant means in this context. But the reason behind it is to prevent advertisers from using minimal query data to identify users or to have access to PII or personally identifiable information used in search queries. Currently, advertisers have insights into search terms with only one impression or one click, and this allows them to deploy what's called a negative keyword management strategy, where essentially they can prevent wasteful ad spend by excluding irrelevant queries with minuscule impressions or clicks. So for example, yeah, if your MBA program is running a Google ad and the ad shows for the query undergraduate business school rankings, you may want to exclude that query moving forward, right? Hmm. But with Google's new announcement about limiting query visibility, you won't necessarily know that your ad ran for that query in the first place unless it has enough significant data. And personally, I think if Google's main attention is to really reel back a few select sensitive queries, that, that's one thing. But on the other hand, there are thousands of low volume queries out there with zero privacy risk, and they serve as real value for advertisers. I think it would be a huge loss if those insights vanished. Seriously. And, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind that I think uh, will, is most pertinent for our listeners is think about, a, you know, a school with smaller budget. They've got a small ad budget um, and they've got really niche programs, right? So the monthly search volume, the MSV uh, might be might be small comparatively, but for a school with, let's just say, a, a PhD program that's looking to garner only a handful of students from a paid campaign, this could be this could be catastrophic. So it'll be really interesting to see how Google, whether or not they repeal this, whether or not they update it in a way that there's a little bit more uh, wiggle room in, in middle ground here. But I mean, I get I get uh, concerned for those folks that, again, have little, little bits of budget and are actually targeting long tail keywords because those long tail keywords convert at a you know reasonable rate for um, for what their goal is for the campaign. So uh, this this was shocking to me when it came out. And um, quite honestly, a little bit annoying uh, because right. we have clients that fall into this this space and, and need this sort of help. But um, it will be really interesting to see sort of like how this uh, progresses um, and, you know, what are what are some of the unintended consequences or, or maybe even intended consequences as a result of this implementation? Absolutely. You know, Zach, I talked to a couple of people, not only on our team, but other advertisers in the industry. And some of their value proposition when they talk to clients in other schools is employing these negative keyword management strategies. Mm. And for them not to have that sort of value add for, for clients and schools in this space, uh, it, it hurts them significantly. So we'll definitely see uh, the outcome of this in the coming weeks and months. Definitely, definitely. Um, Matt, totally changing gears here, but I'd love for you to share about the recent survey you featured um, in in the minute that was conducted by Ohio State on quote unquote jargon. Definitely. So the study from Ohio State, it gave one group of participants this jargon filled sentence to read. Bear with me. I'm going to read this sentence verbatim. Do it. 
Quote, quote, this system works because of AI integration through motion scale and tremor reduction. That's the sentence. In the same study, they then gave another group of participants this non-jargon-filled sentence to read. Quote, the system works because of programming that makes the robot's movements more precise and less shaky. So despite the fact that those who read the jargon-filled sentence were given the definitions to the terms, this group felt disengaged by the end of the passage, and the jargon-free group, on the other hand, felt engaged, empowered, left wanting to learn more. Hmm. And I think prospective students likely don't share the same knowledge about your program subject matter that you do. Maybe for some specialized programs, that could be the case, but for most, probably not. So specialized words and jargon may be unhelpful, especially at the beginning of the prospective student's college search or journey. Writing about complex programs, subject matter, it isn't easy, but enrollment marketers who write clear and understandable descriptions about their programs and processes, they should see better results than those who rely on jargon. This makes a lot of sense and, and sort of just confirms, I think, I think one of the challenges that many enrollment marketers face, especially when working with faculty, is when it comes to program pages, even when it comes to communications about uh, program-specific information sessions, um, other program-specific events, um, one of the things that they often struggle with is like helping faculty uh, sort of, uh, not to put it bluntly, but to put it bluntly, dumb down sort of the, <laughs> the language um, and as you're saying, sort of the, the jargon that fills the pages and replace that with really great marketing copy. And a lot of, you know, a, a lot of great copywriters will say, you know, the first thing that you want to do when you're thinking about any sort of words that you're using to invite a prospective user to take some specific action is to ensure that it's clear, right? And like clarity is, is really important. And more often than not, uh, jargon isn't something that yields lots of clarity. Uh, maybe for, again, a, a subset of, of specific folks, but for the vast majority of us, the vast majority of your prospective students, having copy that isn't clear, that isn't compelling, um, isn't going to do, isn't, isn't going to work on, on the user. So I think what is particularly interesting from this study is, and hopefully maybe a little bit of a, a call to action for those listening is, how can you sort of take this study, uh, because it's you know from uh, from researchers go to your your uh, academics and say hey look fun fact if you want more students in your programs if you want more people to sign up for this event we might need to rework your program uh, copy because you're turning people off unintentionally and here's sort of like the data to prove it so um, uh, interested to see sort of like how folks might be able to take this study and use it to get more accessible copy on program-specific pages and, and other program-specific communications. Yeah, use it as a bit of firepower here when you do come to the table with conversation with those people in decision-making positions and, and faculty. Speaking of words, uh, I loved the Search Engine Journal article that you shared in this past week's ed edition about missing out on conversions. Um, so missing out on people, you know, filling out forms due to a boring, quote unquote, uh, contact us page. So uh, this this article wasn't newsy per se, but rather a, a helpful reminder um, of the importance of thinking really carefully and critically about your contact us page or about us page. A lot of the times those pages rank really well on Google um, and because a lot of people are, are searching for, you know, contact information, whether that's a phone number or an email address. So how do you uh, think 
about turning in, really transforming that sort of boring contact us page into something a little bit more conversion centric. So curious, Matt, like what, what did you think was particularly interesting about this article and um, how might our listeners sort of take some of the, the learnings that this article outlines and apply it in their contacts? Yeah. So Zach, you know, one of the questions we like to ask our clients at the outset of a new relationship is, are, are you guilty of slapping a slate or target X form on a landing page to collect inquiries and calling it a day? Hmm. And most of the time they are. Chances are you might be as well. And your inquiry form might ask too many questions or lack sufficient branding. And this can leave prospective students with an uneasy feeling that their request won't be answered in a timely or even beneficial way. So I think mm. it might be time to revisit your inquiry page to enhance your branding, reevaluate the questions your form is asking, and ensure that there's a clear value proposition that explains what prospective students will receive in exchange for their information. So in Search, Search Engine Journal's uh, article here, they remind us to not be afraid to make your page fun with photos, interactive elements, even quirky copywriting something that shows off your brand's personality. Hmm. They shared 39 examples of unique contact us pages. And, you know, we can share this link in the show notes, no problem. But these uh, sort of examples of unique contact us pages will help you find a right balance between making it as easy as possible for a prospective student to reach your school, but also collect information that enables you to provide truly helpful content and answers the questions that those prospects are are, are asking. Hmm. I love this. And uh, again, this is just more of a, a practical sort of like reminder for folks. If you find yourself with a little bit of spare time or, or maybe, hey, maybe you've got a, a grad assistant that you're working with that's uh, recently been uh, been assigned and they're working with you virtually and maybe you're trying to you know find something to, for them to do, maybe a great place for them to start is to have them have a look at your contact us page, have a look at that about us page and uh, offer up some suggestions of how to make the page more engaging. Um, so for folks who are, again, tr trying to fill the plates of um, their interns or, or their their grad assistants, um, this could be a great place to start. Um, Matt, you also covered a, a recent poll by RNL of 180 graduate programs across the country. And what was interesting about this, about the, the findings of this poll was that uh, reportedly, 23% of leads generated by graduate enrollment management teams are from digital advertising efforts, and 24% are from search engine optimization efforts. This is this is quite amazing, um, and uh, something that I, I feel like more people should be talking about. Right? That's an aggregate of almost half, just about half of all um, you know leads, all all inquiries that are are coming in from either paid digital efforts or, or great organic search. So Matt, talk to us about what stood out to you here and um, you know any, any other specific findings that you think are worth mentioning. If you've ever worked in the industry, or if you, I guess if you have worked in the industry for a long time, you'll notice this is huge growth for these marketing channels. And it's marked by trends in higher ed that began years even prior to COVID-19. About 74% of respondents in this RNL poll uh, reported that they are, quote, very confident or, quote, somewhat confident in the data they are using to track lead generation. I think improved marketing attribution, lead tracking, data collection, all of these have enabled enrollment marketers and recruitment professionals to be increasingly confident in improving the ROI of digital advertising and content marketing strategies. And I think are leading to those numbers you just mentioned, Zach. 
Many are also realizing that the ROI of these channels is higher than traditional channels like TV ads, print ads, list buying, even corporate sponsorships. Yeah. So, you know, finally, I, I think that, you know, where we begin talking about meta, meta descriptions, um, you know, things like that, I, I think um, it, it ties back in here because these small tactics and the ability to track these small tactics really go a long way in, in proving the efforts of SEO and content marketing yeah. and digital advertising. Yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, this is shocking because I do feel like this is uh, something that is often not necessarily underreported, but uh, many enrollment management teams aren't taking these uh, these channels as seriously from an investment standpoint as as I would argue, especially in light of this data that they should be. And it's worth noting here that this is specifically talking about the graduate level and historically. Um, lots and lots of graduate programs have, and not even historically, as as you know, as recent as 2019, there a lot of spend is still going to more traditional methods. Like, hey, you know, we're gonna buy a bunch of GRE names or GMAT names, and we're gonna you know blast them to Kingdom Come with with emails. Or, hey, you know, we're going to place this ad on a billboard near you know the 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 highway or the interstate closest to our school and. Again, I think that this is just a, a reminder, uh, really, hopefully, encouragement that these efforts do work. And what I what I also see here that I think is worth noting is that there is a fair split here, right? It's not like digital advertising, so you know, not like paid search and and social media advertising is forty to fifty percent, right? It's an even split, which tells me that. Folks need to spend just as much time doubling down on their content strategy, on their on their SEO strategy, as they are spending on their paid digital advertising. And more often than not, right, folks want sort of the quick wins, and you want to throw a hundred thousand dollars at a, a paid search campaign and see that you know huge spike overnight. Um, you know, relatively speaking, and fewer people are thinking critically about building a sustainable strategy for the long run, which is uh, what a good content strategy coupled with a good SEO strategy looks like. So this was a, a fascinating poll, Matt. Thank you for thank you for including it. Um, I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will as well. Um, finally, I just want to sort of take us back to where we started um, this episode, sort of talking about meta descriptions. Well, sorry, talking about, you know, meta uh, as in, as in uh, speaking about a podcast on a podcast, um, but this time talking about meta descriptions. Um, that didn't work out as, as well as I had planned, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. We'll roll with it. Um, but Matt, can you give our listeners a uh, refresher on what meta descriptions are and remind us you know, why they still matter? So meta descriptions are HTML attributes that concisely describe what a page, what a web page is about, in roughly 160 characters or less. Adding keywords and meta descriptions isn't a significant SEO ranking factor, but Google still shows meta descriptions in search results about 37% of the time, according to this source, Ahrefs. So writing meta descriptions to match a user's search intent could increase your page's click-through rate and thus significantly raise your number of page visits per month. Hmm. If your recruitment strategy relies heavily on content marketing and organic traffic growth, Optimize those meta descriptions by writing them with prospective students' search intents in mind. And when performing a search, meta descriptions that directly answer the post question or query may have a better chance of being clicked on. Hmm. 
you know, I think it's also worth noting here, Zach, that social media platforms, they rely on, on meta descriptions as well to auto-generate post text and yep. description. So if you're sharing a registration page for a virtual event on your social media channels, for instance, make sure to write strong meta descriptions. This will guarantee that the right message is used when the post is further shared by alumni, faculty, and prospective students. Fantastic, Matt. Um, so much gold here. What I would just add to is uh, oftentimes these sorts of small things seem to be things that you can, um, you know, punt or you, uh, by the time you're getting ready to publish that post, the last thing that you want to do is really think critically about the meta description. You just want to get it out there, right? So you copy and paste some, you know, sentence from the from the blog article or whatever it might be and throw it in there. And, you know, I really do think it, it's, it's worth thinking very critically about um, that is, is is almost a sort of like the headline of your copy. It's 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 not you know it's typically coupled with when you're sharing something on social media. You your your uh, blog post title is typically the headline, but you know it it's the it's the teaser text, right? It's like the preview text equivalent of 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 an email, and it's really worth taking seriously and um, using it as an opportunity if it, if it helps. Think about it as a game. Like how do you ensure that the real estate that you're given here um, is going to inspire a prospective uh, scroller to click through and consume the content. Um, so super, super helpful there, Matt. Uh, thanks for sharing um, uh, all that you shared today. Thank you for your time, that you, the time that you spend every week uh, helping us make sense of the, you know, the ever robust world that is higher ed marketing and helping us translate what's happening in the MarTech world um, into an enrollment marketing context. Really appreciate your time, sir. Um, Absolutely. For folks that uh, want to connect with Matt, you can connect with him on LinkedIn, ask him any follow-up questions you might have, um, or just email him directly at matthew at enrollify.org. Um, thanks for being here, folks. Have a great week, and we will see you next week. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to, digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.